0: While the auteur theory focuses on a director's unique recurring themes and styles, the truth is that many auteurs use similar styles to explore similar themes. Dario Argento, Tim Burton and Guillermo del Toro each use gothic palettes expressionist production design with extreme camera angles and lenses to tell stories of loners and outsiders. And yet, despite all those parallels, you could never mistake The Girl with the Crystal Plumage for Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children or indeed, the shape of water. You clean that lab, you get out. The thing we keep in there is an affront. Do you know what an affront is, Zelda? Something offensive. That's right. And I should know, I dragged that filthy thing out of the river muck in South America all the way here. However, different styles and different themes can still result in similarities. From Seven and Zodiac to Gone Girl and Minehunter, David Fincher uses a very limited color range to explore criminal pathology. As for Christopher Nolan, whether it be Memento, Inception, Interstellar or Dunkirk, he prefers a metallic palette to explore the mechanics of time. And while Paul Thomas Anderson has drifted from heavy saturation in Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love to subdued tones in The Master and Phantom Thread, he always paints portraits of obsession. Please don't move so much, Alma. buttering my toes and not moving too much. It's too much. It's a distraction. It's very distracting. But despite their idiosyncrasies, they've all been compared to Stanley Kubrick. And yet, while widely considered to have been the complete auteur, Kubrick himself was clearly influenced by, and frequently compared to, the likes of F.W. Murnau, Max Offels and Orson Welles. Mike, do you realise this is the very first time we've been together in my country? Do you realise I haven't kissed you in over an hour? Although they each explored different themes, you can't connect Murnau, Offals and Wells by the use of long tracking shots. The Last Laugh, Letter from an Unknown Woman and Touch of Evil each display intricate camera movements that not only map the geographical spaces of the story but also articulate the feelings of the characters. In other words, the camera unites both the external world and internal thoughts to help convey the story's themes. For the last laugh, it was social hierarchy, letter from an unknown woman, romantic suffering, and touch of evil, moral corruption. As for Kubrick, from Paths of Glory, Spartacus, Dr. Strangelove, or A Clockwork Orange, one of his several recurring themes was the struggle for freedom in a world... Where the individual is restricted by ideological indoctrination. Son, all I've ever asked of my marines is for them to obey my orders as they would the word of God. We are here to help the Vietnamese because inside every gook there is an American trying to get out. It's a hardball world, son. We've got to try to keep our heads until this peace craze blows over. Released in 1987, Full Metal Jacket is based on The Short Timers, a novella written in 1979 by Gustav Hasford. Of Kubrick's 13 films, Ten of them were based on novels. Yet, what sets Full Metal Jacket apart from the other adaptations is that Hasford's book was heavily informed by his experience of having served as a combat correspondent in Vietnam. But whether a true story, adaptation or original screenplay, Kubrick's approach to any story was to ensure that the themes were not communicated solely through words, but rather through images, framing, lighting and lensing. Over the course of his career, Kubrick inclined more and more towards practical lighting, where the light sources were either natural or clearly visible within the frame. His preferred lens? Beginning his career as a photographer, he had several. So here to detail Kubrick's favorites is Joe Dunton, cinematographer, engineer, and most recently, executive vice president at Panavision. Lenses actually make the pictures. The lenses are the most important part of cinema picture making. His understanding of lenses came from his still's background. And this is probably um, Stanley's favourite lens. This was that there's an 18mm version of this lens and a 25mm version of this lens. This is again a Cook Speed Pancro, and you can tell by the tiny little back elements. It's designed for a cinema frame, it's not designed for a film frame. <laughs> One of the reasons Kubrick liked the 18 and 25 so much was because they helped even out and keep smooth his long tracking shots. Now, many directors deploy tracking shots, and to great effect. But many of those directors track parallel to the action or track alongside the actors as they walk through the scene. By contrast, Kubrick placed a single actor directly in front of the camera and tracked back as he or she walked towards us. Which brings us to Kubrick's framing. Much has been made of his predilection for symmetrical composition. But another Kubrick signature was the characters looking straight down the lens, and directly into the camera. You little scumbag! I got your name, I got your ass! You will not laugh, you will not cry, you will learn by the numbers, I will teach you. Now get up, get on your feet! Kubrick used the technique across four other films, each film using it to a different effect. In 2001, as David Bowman, played by Keir Dullea, embarks on his Odyssey, his look reflects what might exist beyond infinity. A Clockwork Orange opens with Alex Delarge, played by Malcolm McDowell, looking at us with a grin so persistent, it indicates a violent intent. In The Shining, while cycling about the corridors of the Overlook Hotel, young Danny Torrance, played by Danny Lloyd, is confronted by the vision of the murdered Grady twins. What is interesting here Is that Danny looks directly into the camera but quickly covers his eyes in horror. And then in Eyes Wide Shut, the look is even more interesting because the person staring down the lens is wearing a mask. Kubrick was not the first filmmaker to deploy the technique. In 1966, Ingmar Bergman used it in Persona, where Alma, played by Baby Anderson, and Elizabeth, played by Lee Vullman, look directly into the camera while one is talking and the other is listening. And in 1960, Alfred Hitchcock had ended Psycho with Anthony Perkins's Norman Bates staring directly at us. That shot was one of Hitchcock's preferred shots, as he had already used it across a host of films from Vertigo, North by Northwest, The Wrong Man, Strangers on a Train, The Paradigm Case... Lifeboat, Suspicion, The Lady Vanishes, The 39 Steps, his first version of The Man Who Knew Too Much, his first picture, Blackmail, and all the way back to his breakthrough in 1926, The Lodger. But an even earlier film that did it was Edward S. Porter's The Great Train Robbery, when, in the film's very final shot, Cowboy juiced his D. Barnes, raised his gun, and shot straight at us. Clearly then, auteurs borrow from everywhere, But what separates their work from, shall we say, lesser talents? To really see how different Kubrick was, let us compare Full Metal Jacket to other films that addressed America's military intervention in Vietnam. While the war was raging, Hollywood was very wary of depicting the conflict. Unlike the campaigns for World War II and Korea, support for the war back home was deeply divided. So, while a few films were made during the war, A Yank in Vietnam, To the Shores of Hell, The Green Berets and The Losers, Financiers only felt it a safe investment after President Nixon withdrew forces from the region in 1973. I have asked for this radio and television time tonight for the purpose of announcing that we, today, have concluded an agreement to end the war and bring peace with honour in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia. Then, in an 18-month period, from February 1978 to August 1979, audiences could reflect on the Boys from Company C, Go Tell the Spartans, Coming Home, The Deer Hunter, and Apocalypse Now. Horror. Horror. Whether elegiac or hallucinogenic, all those films adopted a critical stance to the war. But by the time Ronald Reagan was elected to the White House in 1980, the mood had changed and Hollywood took to produce such jingoistic fare as Purple Hearts, Eye of the Eagle and Uncommon Valour, the revisionist fantasy, Rambo First Blood Part 2, and the even more absurd Missing an Action trilogy. What the hell do you need an assault raft for? The camp's in the Delta. Wrapped is the easiest way in. How come you never mentioned getting out? We can hit the camp without raising an alarm. We'll go back the same way we came. Oh, that's nice. And if not? We'll think of something. Then, in 1987, Oliver Stone released Platoon. Undoubtedly benefiting from Stone having served during the war, it made for a highly personal account of the conflict. Yet as indelibly powerful as Stone's picture was, both it and all the other titles, with the exception of Apocalypse Now, encouraged audiences to reduce the war to one lesson. The loss of American innocence. Or to be explicit, American innocence lost at the hands of Vietnamese people. In choosing Hasford's book, Kubrick adopted an altogether different attitude. Hasford's short novel, it runs for barely over 190 pages, unfolds in just three chapters, The Spirit of the Bayonet, Body Count and Grunts. It begins with a group of young men at the Paris Island training camp in South Carolina. There, the recruits are subject to torrents of abuse from their drill instructor, Sergeant Gerheim. And it is through that ideological indoctrination that they are transformed into killing machines. In other words, whatever innocence they may have had was extracted from them long before they set foot on foreign soil. Kubrick rarely gave interviews, but in promoting the picture, he was quoted in Newsweek magazine as saying, the thing I'd really like to do is explode the narrative structure of movies. I want to do something earth-shaking. The narrative structure to which Kubrick was referring is the classical Hollywood model of three acts. setup, complication and resolution. But there aren't three acts in Full Metal Jacket. There are two. The first is training on Paris Island and the second is combat in Vietnam. However, if you examine those two divisions, you will see further subdivisions. In Paris Island, things take a turn when Private Joker, played by Matthew Modine, is appointed squad leader by Gunnery Sergeant Harpin, played by Orly Ermy. Part of Joker's responsibility is to pay close attention to Private Pyle, played by Vincent D'Onofrio. The plan seems to work because Pyle responds positively. That is until, as is so often in the case of Kubrick's films, the plan falls apart. Sir, it is the private's duty to inform the senior drill instructor that Private Pyle has a full magazine. And is locked and loaded, sir. which means that by the time we arrive in Vietnam, what was originally read as the second half of the film is, in actual fact, the third section. Private Joker has been promoted to sergeant and is serving with the Stars and Stripes press corps. Again, this works until, out on patrol, Joker and his fellow squad members are pinned down by a sniper, which heralds the fourth and final section. But there are yet further divisions, When discussing film structure, Kubrick theorised that you needed six to eight of what he called non-submersible units, sequences that function autonomously, but when placed together, encourage the audience to draw connections between the various units. So let's look back at those units. The film famously opens with a verbal assault on the recruits. You are the lowest form of life on Earth. You are not even human fucking beings. You are nothing but unorganised, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit! Now let's compare that opening to when the story shifts to Vietnam. There we have an instructor of a different kind, initiating the recruits as to the codes of conduct. Joker, I've told you we run two basic stories here. Grunts who give half their pay to buy gooks, toothbrushes and deodorants, winning of hearts and minds, okay? And combat action that results in a kill, winning the war. And just as the Paris Island section climaxed with a murder and suicide, the Vietnam sequence climaxes with murder and a mercy killing. Now compare some of Private Pyle's final words. I am in a world of shit to what Private Joker has to say at the very end. I'm in a world of shit. Yes, but I am alive and I am not afraid. All of which elevates Kubrick's work above almost every other film addressing the war. Consider, for example, The Boys from Company C. Written and directed by Sidney J. Fury, it also starts in training camp where Gunnery Sergeant Lois tries to drill discipline into his recruits perhaps not coincidentally, or Lee Ermey, himself a real-life Marine Corps drill sergeant, played Sergeant Loyce. I'm Sergeant Loyce. I'm your drill instructor for the next two fucking months, maggots. Jesus, how in the hell do they expect me to train fucking Marines when they won't even send me human goddamn beings to start with? Sergeant, get these fucking people through receiving barracks. I'm going to help you out. I don't want to drop in any of their fucking civilian slime on the way through. Jesus. You don't have to see it to identify the difference. Even without Kubrick's trademark lighting, lensing and framing, the vocabulary used, the cadence of the dialogue, the positioning of commas, there is a lack of precision, which results in an actor not delivering lines smoothly. His breathing is off, which means his performance is off, which means the scene is off. No, a much better comparison for Kubrick's film is in fact a trilogy. The Human Condition is a near 10-hour adaptation of a six-volume autobiography written by Junpei Gomikawa recounting in critical detail his experiences serving in Emperor Hirohito's Imperial Army during World War II. Directed by Masaki Kobayashi in three parts, it focuses on young Kaji, who, although a pacifist, is conscripted into service. It is the trilogy's second part, Road to Eternity, to which Full Metal Jacket is better considered because it is there that Kaji, played by Tatsuya Nakade, has to survive not just the brutality of combat, but even before he gets there, the training he has to undergo at the hands of Officer Banai, played by Kenjuo (laughs) Ordemura. Clearly then, great auteurs use similar styles to explore similar themes as those of other filmmakers. So what's the difference? They just do it with a greater consistency and precision.